The following clips were slowly collected over the course of the last 10 months, so this episode is even more retrospective than the norm. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from MarkFiore.com, On the Media, The Daily Show, The Progressive, The Young Turks, The Bugle, Counterspin, and The Mike Malloy Show, with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Daily Show. In a world where one nation's sovereignty is under attack, where real danger lurks around every corner, a world where confrontation must be met with brute force, and the march of humanitarian aid must be stopped. In this world, one nation has managed to do exactly what it was trying to prevent. Operation Overreaction, starring the Israeli Defense Forces, Free Gaza Flotilla, Benjamin Netanyahu, Hamas, and one and a half million blockaded civilians. Also starring in the biggest supporting role ever, Cold Hard Cash. Operation Overreaction, because sometimes you have to do exactly what you're trying not to do. Much of the criticism of the IDF's handling of the flotilla was voiced within Israel itself, where debate over Israeli policies is often more robust than it is here. In a much-discussed essay in the New York Review of Books this month called The Failure of the American Jewish Establishment, author and journalist Peter Beinart argues that groups like the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, or APAC, or the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, or the Anti-Defense League, squelch criticism on these shores by regarding critics of Israel as enemies of Israel. We asked Beinart and Stephen Rosen, the former Director of Foreign Policy Issues at APAC, to debate the issue. The focus is intentionally narrow. This is not a discussion of Israel's right to exist. Both Beinart and Rosen are Zionists. This is a debate about whether criticism endangers Israel's security. More fundamental for this program, it's an argument over whether honest debate ever poses a danger to a democracy. Both Beinart and Rosen do agree on two points. First, that criticism of Israel in American media is far more abundant than it used to be. And second, that criticism of Israel in the U.S. Congress is very rarely heard. Mostly I stayed out of it. Peter Beinart begins. Not to single out APAC, but all of the major pro-Israel organizations say very explicitly that their support for Israel, their love of Israel, is not only because they are Jews and Israel is a Jewish state, but because Jews have created in Israel a liberal, democratic Jewish state. But if you say that's why you admire Israel, then it seems to me you have a responsibility to fight for those values, for Israel as a liberal democracy. And I think there are forces in Israel today, in the settlement movement, in Shas, the ultra-Orthodox Mizrahi party that are hostile to liberal democratic values, and I think we who love Israel as a liberal democracy have to defend them. But the problem here is there's only one actual Israel. 
When a person says, I'm pro-Israel, but I don't like the Israel that exists, there's this Israel in my mind that if only they would do all of the things that I say they should do, and then I will love them, they're talking about an imaginary world. There's an actual Israel, the only Israel. And that Israel is surrounded by enemies. And you're either going to try to help protect it, or you're going to jump on the bandwagon of those who are trying to harm it. There's only two camps here. And it's true that you could go to Israel and try to meet with the members of the Israeli government and persuade them to pursue the course of action that you think is appropriate. But you're arguing that that debate should be held in the United States Congress. The United States is Israel's only reliable ally. When you drive a wedge between the United States and Israel, you're weakening Israel. You're causing Israel profound harm. I think it's mistaken to draw a bright line between Israelis who criticize their government and people outside the United States, particularly Jews. Because in fact, I think the fate of those Israelis who want to create an open space for criticism is very dependent on our willingness outside of Israel to amplify their voices and be in solidarity with them. In fact, one of the things that worries me most about what this Israeli government has done is their campaign against human rights organizations and others that support criticism and an unvarnished look at Israelis' policies. We have a vice prime minister who called Peace Now, the anti-occupation group, a virus. We've had members of the Knesset of the ruling parties that have virtually called the New Israel Fund and that funds a lot of Israeli human rights organizations treasonous. Those people need our aid. They need our defense. If I don't have the right as an American Jew to amplify the voices of those Israeli Jews who share my values, then I think the fate of those Israeli Jews who want to create space in their society for criticism will be more imperiled. And I believe that I have that right just as American Jews had the right to be critical of the Soviet Union when it was not allowing Jews to immigrate, just as American Jews had the right to protest about the genocide in Bosnia and that they do in Darfur. I see us to some degree all as part of a moral community in which we can have public concerns outside of our borders. Well, I don't think this is a debate I can win to the NPR audience, but <laughs> I never said, Peter, that you don't have the right to support the New Israel Fund, for example. If you want to send a contribution to the New Israel Fund, by all means do so. If you want to join an Israeli political party or write in an Israeli newspaper or even an American newspaper, go ahead. But if your point is that APAC and the Anti-Defamation League should join the crusade against Israel, which is the central point of your article, then I think you're on the wrong track because they are part of the effort to strengthen Israel and to help Israel in a dangerous world. This is not about debates on university campuses. This is about the survival of Israel against an enormous coalition. You know, American even-handedness is not even-handed in its effects. The whole world is an automatic ally of the other side. Israel has one reliable ally. It's the United States. And when you erode the alliance between the United States and Israel, you're undermining Israel's security. It's not just about the policy you don't like. It's about the whole country, the stuff you do like and don't like equally. So it's the wrong approach. It's like sacrificing your child because they're drinking too much. I see in what Stephen is saying a reflection partly of the generational divide that I was talking about in my piece, and I say this with great respect, but I just do not identify with this vision that he seems to have in which the entire world is destined to hate Israel and Jews regardless of what Israel does, that it's basically somehow just in the soil, that we should assume that everybody who criticizes Israel, particularly every non-Jew, is doing so from a position of ill will. There's a bleakness, a pessimism to that, that 
I think is not in what I think of as the best Jewish traditions that animate me and my life. Many people who criticize Israel, they believe understandably in a post-colonial world that it is not just to keep control of large numbers of people who you don't give the right to vote, rather than seeing those people as eternally hostile to Jews and Israel. We should be willing to listen to their criticisms. But the blanket assertion that everybody hates Israel and everybody always will, I think, is part of a bunker mentality that is making it harder for Israel to live out its best traditions. Perhaps you haven't paid attention that in the last 25 years, since this older generation has faded, you've seen the growth of Islamic extremism on a global scale, much of it aimed at Israel. And they are not so much interested in the territories as such. They are interested in the very existence of Israel, as they openly state. So I don't see how you can dismiss the sea of hostility. It's in front of your face every day. It's not the professors at the Sorbonne, and it's not the New York Review of Books that we're talking about. It's Hamas and Hezbollah and Iran and Syria and Islamic extremists from one end of the globe to the other. So you're talking about a very deeply threatened country. It's not threatened because of one policy or another or the personality of Bibi Netanyahu or any other single thing. The pro-Israel organizations, I worked for one, APEC, for 23 years, I ought to know, see themselves as part of an activist effort to fight against that tidal wave. If criticism lends support and comfort to Hezbollah and Hamas, does that mean that criticism itself becomes an existential issue? I didn't argue once, Brooke, in this discussion against criticism. What I argued against repeatedly... Policies in the U.S. government, I understand that. Exactly. But you also did say that there are really only two sides. You're either supporting Israel or you've joined the caravan of people who are against them. Well, it is true that when you write an article like Peter's, which just piles on criticism and barely mentions the threats to Israel, it hardly mentions Hamas, Iran, the world consists, as he tells it, of Israeli sins, which he recites very passionately. He's extremely eloquent. May there be intellectual merit in point number seven or point number 11? Probably here and there, yeah. But you're not building Zionism, as he says in his article, you're eroding it. Does it mean that you don't have the right in a democracy to say these things? No. But you don't have the right to call it pro-Israel activity. That it is not. The last two weeks, Peter, Israel's been under assault, and you've been on the radio reciting what's wrong with Israel. The last two weeks were the acid test, the rainy day, a day in which, yes, There are questions about whether Israel handled the boarding of this ship properly. And people who say their friends have to be there on a rainy day, not just on a sunny day, not just if Israel does everything perfectly and lives up to your golden shining Israel on the hill in your imagination, but on days when Israel's imperfect, you have to be there. And if you're not going to be there when the going gets rough, then don't call yourself a friend. I can be there if I believe that Israel is badly hurting itself, just like I had the right to be there when I thought the United States was badly hurting itself during much of the Bush-Cheney period. You can say that I'm a utopian to believe that Israel should not be in the business of creating a situation in which 80% of the people in Gaza are in food aid, that it's utopian to believe that Israel can be secure. I don't believe that's utopian. If that's utopian, then the people who created the state of Israel were utopian, because that was not the vision that they had 
had of what the Jewish state would be, and I don't believe that it's the vision that we have to settle for today. I don't hear you talking about Israel facing a security dilemma, the dilemma of 3,000 rockets and the danger that far more potent and more accurate and larger warheads will get there that will threaten Israel's major cities. I don't think just filling the airwaves with more criticism of Israel contributes one thing. By the way, a point that I didn't make earlier, you talk about people whose voices are silenced. At the typical American university, a friend of Israel will find it very difficult to get tenure in the political science department. A friend of Israel has looked at someone suspect outside the community of values. And in any place where the intellectual elites congregate, friendship toward Israel is not well regarded. I doubt that there are very many staff members at National Public Radio who are stand-up friends of Israel because it's not popular in these environments. The real imbalance is an unwillingness to hear the pro-Israel voice. That's the real problem. But Steve, the problem is you're defining pro-Israel as only people who won't be publicly critical. And when you define it that way, yes, you are going to find that pro-Israel voices, as you define them, are very rare on university campuses and other places. But if you define pro-Israel in a more generous way, just as I would define pro-American as people who are very, very upset about certain policies of American governments, then the balance of forces looks very, very different. I think you are self-perpetuating this cycle of victimology, everybody is against us, by not being generous in your interpretation of those people who genuinely do want Israel to exist, indeed even thrive and prosper as a Jewish state, but believe its own policies are harmful in that effort. By your definition, I also am part of this sea of people who are anti-Israel. That just has no meaning for me, given the, the values with which I was raised, given the connection to Israel that I feel and that I inst will plan to instill in my children. It, it, it's it's, it's kind of insulting. Well, we're going around in circles. I, I don't see how you, you devote 90% of your time to what's wrong with Israel. You minimize the threat to Israel. You describe Israel's leaders as, as nearly demonic people. And then at the end of it, you say, I'm a great friend of Israel. I, I just don't get it. It is September. Reluctant children are having to put away the carefree joys of summer, get their books, their rucksacks together, and go back to the negotiating table to finally resolve the Israel-Palestine issue. I gotta tell you, I'm feeling good about it this time. Because I've never read anything about it in my entire life. How do the experts feel? The roller coaster that seems to be the Mideast peace process, Juliet, is going downhill. It's very hard to be optimistic. The chances for success there are very, very slim. I just don't see that the conditions are right. Diplomacy can only bridge differences that are bridgeable. Hey. <laughs> turn that... <laughs> turn that mustache upside down. Can we do that? All right. It's going to be a fair negotiation. We're going to hear from both sides. 
wants to make the first offer in the Middle East peace process? Do I hear peace in the Middle East? Two attacks this week on Israelis carried out by Hamas. Okay, so their uh, opening bid is the launching of attacks, but there's a lot of things being launched these days. Peace talks, attacks. My new fragrance, stew beefs for men. <laughs> Available now at Macy's. It smells like beef. <laughs> All right, well, Hamas, technically, they're not part of the negotiations anyway. You gotta start somewhere. An intriguing opening offer of unending violence. Anyone on the other side of a counteroffer? Okay, we're getting one in from Israeli Foreign Minister Avigdor Lieberman, and he says, quote, I do not believe that a comprehensive agreement with the Palestinians is possible within a year, nor even during the next generation. <laughs> you hear that? Unborn children of yet-to-be-conceived fetuses? <laughs> You've got a shot. <laughs> All right, so Hamas opens with endless bloodshed. Israel counters with, these talks won't go anywhere until everyone's dead. Obviously, there's room for improvement there. And the joke's on the sourpusses, because Obama's efforts have already borne fruit. The parties have agreed to continue talking. For now, the U.S. sees progress in the fact that they have both sides sitting down in the same room. Booyah! <laughs> we did it! We got them to agree! USA! USA! A two-chair solution! We so so The Obama administration has caved once again, and I'm not talking about tax breaks for the rich. No, I'm talking about Obama's decision to no longer press Israel for a 90-day settlement freeze. So Netanyahu is off the hook again, and so is any chance for a peace settlement anytime in the foreseeable future. Obama had dangled all varieties of carrots in front of Netanyahu, military and otherwise, but Obama had no stick, and the Israeli rightists dug in. Since Israel and the U.S. have proven themselves incapable of getting off the dime, it's now up to the Palestinian Authority, or to some other Palestinian entity if the authority collapses, to make a bold move, as the Israeli peace activist Jeff Helper now recommends. And that is to simply declare themselves a Palestinian state along the 1967 borders and to seek recognition from governments around the world. They won't get it, at least not right away, from Israel and from the U.S., but the diplomatic momentum will all be on their side. It's the only nonviolent alternative to the stalemate and to the endless occupation that I can see. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Turn 
I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. The Prime Minister of the uh, Hamas-led government in Gaza uh, is a guy by the name of Ismail uh, Haniyeh. And he has come out and said, hey, you know what, if Mahmoud Abbas, who is the head of the opposition, Fatah, in the West Bank, and they control the West Bank. So if the other Palestinians, the ones that the, that's working with the West, if they strike a deal with Israel, and there's a referendum for all Palestinians, including the West Bank and Gaza Strip, and the Palestinian people sign off on that peace deal, we're in. That's a huge story. So, because it, what Israel always says, and what uh, other critics say is, oh, it, what's the point of the, these negotiations? Hamas is never going to sign on anyway, and they're uh, terrorists, and they're always going to fight us, and they always want to destroy us. And here's Hamas coming out and saying, no, if there's a peace deal, even if it's made by the people that we fought internally within the Palestinian uh, people, we will agree to it if there's a referendum. That's it. Now he goes further. He says, look, we quote, we want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And he says, and this is a direct quote, we don't have a problem with establishing a viable Palestinian state with full sovereignty on the land that was occupied in 1967. Now why is that so important? Because here's the leader of Hamas saying, no, we don't need all of Israel. We just need the occupied land in 1967. Because again, people will say, oh no, Hamas, if you do a deal, they're not going to accept the 1967 borders. They're going to want all of Israel. No, here they are saying, we're going to accept the 1967 borders. And by the way, it's not just uh, their prime minister. Their supreme leader in exile, Khalid Mashal, has also expressed support for a Palestinian state within the 1967 borders. Look, that's an excellent development. And unfortunately, my sense of it is that this story will get washed out. It'll barely get covered in the news, and then no one will remember it. And that the next time there's a debate on this issue, people will say, oh, Hamas, you can't reason with them. They're never going to sign on to a peace deal. Even though they came out and did a press conference for the world today saying, yes, we will accept the deal. Anything is hard to find. Middle East update, the Forgotten Countries. 
Andy, the international news has been dominated by Libya all this week due to the fact that we, as NATO, have been trying to bomb some freedom into it. <laughs> and it's, it's been all Gaddafi said this, Gaddafi said that, Gaddafi did this to his civilian population with that. And it's all definitely newsworthy, no one's denying that. It's just that there are other countries in the Middle East that we're not giving our physical or indeed mental attention to that are also deserving of being discussed. What about the plucky countries that no one's really talking about? <coughs> the forgotten Middle East, if you will. Your Israels, your Syrias, <laughs> your United Arab Emirates. <laughs> what are those crazy little bastards up to? Well, let's take a look. Israel! Jews news! <laughs> Israel is currently spending its days shitting itself at the moment over the situation all around it, which is not very different at all from how it's been spending its last half a century. But there was even more instability than usual coming out of the, oh, come on, you promised land this week. <laughs> Justin Bieber, the floppy-haired, asexual object of affection for teenage girls around the world, was visiting Israel this week and unwittingly stumbled into something of a diplomatic snafu. He was scheduled to have a meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, but it was called off at the last minute, with both sides differing on why. Now, before we delve much further into this story, Andy, let's not gloss over <laughs> what's a very important fact. Let's not bury the lead here, which is that, before it was cancelled, <laughs> Benjamin Netanyahu was scheduled to have a meeting with Justin Bieber. We all live in a world where that nearly happened. <laughs> Benjamin Netanyahu... Prime Minister of Israel very nearly had a meeting with Justin Bieber, 17-year-old singer boy. <laughs> Is this how far from a peace agreement we now are? We're just throwing Bieber at the wall. <laughs> <laughs> Hoping he sticks. Well, I mean, it's not, uh, you know, it's not, I mean, that's not so new, is it? I mean, uh, let's not let forget that Golda Meir had a meeting with Donny Osmond in the early 70s. <laughs> To be fair to him, John, he's not the first young heartthrob in the Holy Land to uh, endure a mixture of public adulation and official interference. But uh, let's just hope he has a more effective legal team than some of his more illustrious predecessors. <laughs> course, uh, for, I, I don't know much about Justin Bieber, John. He's just a name to me. Mm -hmm. um, I'll right. have to look him up on Wikipedia, famous for hits such as Baby and the yes. follow-up single Toddler. And um, <laughs> if you play his hit single Baby Backwards, it quite explicitly states that Justin Bieber will only date committed and certifiable Zionists, that he has a <laughs> tattoo of Ariel Sharon on his back, and that he thinks Israel should extend their settlement programme into other areas, including Jordan, Turkey and Iowa. Uh, although whether he knew that when he was singing it, or if he was just stitched up uh, by my people, who of course run the entire entertainment in industry, we don't know. <laughs> We've got it stitched up, John. As proved, as proved by my unending run of success in primetime British television. <laughs> you are a one-man argument against anti-Semitism, Andy. <laughs> a, uh, a spokesman for Benjamin Netanyahu said that he'd been approached uh, with the idea of a meeting and that the Prime Minister had been, I quote, open to that. See, straight away, that is surprising, Andy. I'd have thought that if someone asked the Prime Minister of a major country located in one of the most violent flashpoints on the planet whether he wanted to meet Justin Bieber, <laughs> he, would, he would be closed to that. <laughs> or at the very least, his instinctive question would be, why? Why exactly would I do that? 
I have a lot to do with my day. <laughs> Apparently, the Prime Minister's office suggested including children from communities in southern Israel that have been under intense rocket fire from Gaza in recent days. But the spokesman said that proved impossible because Bieber's representatives had turned down the idea of including the children. Wow. So the special Bieber summit was scuppered over the situation in Gaza. <laughs> I guess that isn't much of a surprise, Andy. When you think about it, so many of Justin Bieber's lyrics are based around the current affairs in Gaza <laughs> and the West Bank. You've talked about what it's like when you play it backwards. Never mind that, Andy. Look at what it's like when you play it forwards. Look at that hit, baby. If you just imagine that the subject of the song is Gaza and the Palestinian territories, it's clearly a song trying to win that land back. <laughs> Here's how it goes. You know you love me. I know you care. Just shout whenever, and I'll be there. You are my love, you are my heart, and we will never, ever, ever be apart. <laughs> that clearly speaks to the determination of hardline Israelis' complete refusal to agree to a two-state solution. <laughs> Bieber, Bieber doesn't stop there, Andy. He goes on, saying, Are we an item? Girl substitute that for Gaza, quit playing. We're just friends, what are you saying? Said, there's another, and looked right in the eyes. My first love broke my heart for the first time. Now, that's a little poetic license from Bieber there, Andy. <laughs> I don't think he's suggesting by any means that this is the first time the Jewish people in their history have had their hearts broken. <laughs> but he continues saying, uh, and, I was like, <laughs> and I was like, baby, 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 oh, I thought you'd always be mine, mine. Why did he think that, Andy? Why was he so sure? Because the land was promised to Moses, Andy. <laughs> That's what Bieber cannot get his head around in the plaintive chorus of that song. <laughs> it's all there. It's all there. <laughs> in another Twitter message, Bieber wrote, I want, I want to see the this country and all the places I've dreamed of, and whether mm -hmm. it's the paps or being pulled into politics, it's been frustrating. <laughs> And he was quoting there directly from George W. Bush on a visit to Iraq in 2003. <laughs> <laughs> and Bieber might have a postgraduate diploma in brushing his hair, but he could not punctuate his way out of a wet paper bag, John. <laughs> there was a frankly distressing lack of commas. Not to mention the apostrophes that should be there. I mean, he's at least, he's three apostrophes down. It's uh, absolute f***ing <laughs> disgrace. I'd, I would f***ing nail him up if I had the chance. <laughs> This just, this just crucify Bieber. Out. It's got to be done. <laughs> well, there's a hashtag for Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> this this just goes to show how crazy pop singers get, Andy. With all that adulation, all those fans, your ego is inflated to the extent that even as a 17-year-old boy, you find yourself watching the news on CNN and thinking, well. The Middle East has been in turmoil for thousands of years now, and there just seems no hope of a solution on the horizon. What can I do? <laughs> what can I, Justin Bieber, do? What can I, 17-year-old Canadian singer boy Justin Bieber, do to not only help but solve this intractable problem forever? Sure, I could keep singing and dancing and releasing hit albums. Or I, Justin Bieber, <laughs> could get the Prime Minister of Israel on the phone and enter into direct negotiations myself. You know what? I'm going to do it. <laughs> and also, you know what? I hope he's successful, Andy. I hope that Justin Bieber... Justin Bieber can bring peace to that reason. Would I be surprised? Yes. But would I be happy? Tremendously. <laughs> Plus, here's the thing. It could actually work. And here's how. 
if either Netanyahu or Abbas have 12-year-old daughters. Because <laughs> there is no greater weak point for any father than when it comes to doing something for their daughters. And if Bieber can somehow leverage the affection Netanyahu and Abbas have for their little girls, I think he could get them to make major concessions on both sides and there could actually be genuine peace. Well, I'd, I'd love to come and do a private concert for you and your friends, but only if you can con con convince Daddy to allow Jerusalem to be governed by a third party. headline in the April 10th New York Times read, Violence Rises as Israel and Hamas Trade Blows. The story tells us the trading of blows resulted in 18 deaths. Read further and you find that the dead were all Palestinians in Gaza and that roughly half were civilians and thus not aptly described as members of Hamas. On the Israeli side, one boy was seriously injured. As the Times put it, quote, the Israeli military said that if civilians were hit, it was because militants shot from among them. But the deaths on Friday of 19-year-old Nidal Kuda, who was studying to be a medical secretary, and her mother Naja, 40, outside the southeastern city of Khan Yunus, did not fit that pattern, witnesses said, close quote. How such a lopsided situation could be described by a headline suggesting symmetry goes unexplained, but that same sort of tilting of the scales was found in the next day's Times, where Isabel Kirshner presented a timeline of the current Mideast violence, starting, of course, with the Palestinians. Quote, the most recent escalation began when the military wing of Hamas fired a cornet anti-tank missile at the school bus from a distance of about two miles. It was the first time the group used an advanced laser-guided weapon against a civilian target, close quote. That claim seems to be refuted in the next paragraph, where Kirshner writes, quote, Hamas said the attack was meant to avenge Israel's killing of three of the group's militants on April 2nd, an act that Hamas said violated an earlier ceasefire, close quote. Kirshner doesn't offer any evidence that what Hamas is saying is wrong or explain why her reporting matter-of-factly assumes a different view. Readers are presumably just to understand that for U.S. media, escalations begin when Israel says they do. When your mind's when your mind's there's no point trying to change it. When your The revolution in Egypt underscores the insanity of Israel's policy of perpetual Palestinian oppression. 
Insane for Israel, insane for the U.S., insane for Jews around the world. It's insane for Israel because it's predicated on the assumption that the major pieces of the Middle East would remain forever frozen in place. For 30 years, Israel rested comfortably as the U.S. bought off Egypt and secured Israel's western flank. But today, Israel isn't resting so comfortably since the collusion of Egypt can no longer be guaranteed and the plight of the Palestinians is a popular cause among the protesters in Cairo. Israel's policy is insane for the U.S., as Washington is suspect not only because of its longtime support for Mubarak, but also because of its support for Israel's policy. And it's insane for Jews around the world because it's fueling anti-Semitism. As a Jew, I've been taken aback by the anti-Mubarak signs that show him defaced with the Star of David. This conflates all Jews with the policy of the State of Israel, and that's distressing to say the least. You can read it if you want as out-and-out anti-Semitism, or you can read it as a crude denunciation of Mubarak's pro-Israel position Either way, the fact remains that by not granting Palestinians a just state of their own, Israel's been hatching anti-Semites. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Right now, the Palestinians have chosen a path uh, that I th I, I'm totally in favor of and I think makes a lot of sense in resolving the Israeli-Palestinian issue. Uh, now, I've uh, over and over condemned the terrorist attacks because it's stupid, it's counterproductive, and it's immoral, right? Uh, these things are all, in my opinion, obvious. So they've gone to a new path, a diplomatic path. And what they're doing is the same thing that Israel did. They're saying, you know what, we're going to go to the United Nations and have them declare a Palestinian state. That's how Israel was formed in the first place. The United Nations declared a state. And they say they have all the right in the world to seek that and to actually get that. It's a very fair point. And it's, and of course, Israel and the United States tried to prevent it, saying, no, 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 don't do that. No, you don't need to do that. That's ridiculous. No, that would hurt the peace process. On based on what? Nothing. Based on nothing. Well, then Israel won't want to negotiate. They don't want to negotiate now. So what's the difference? And, oh, and U.S. won't be a fair moderator. They're already not a fair moderator. So there's no downside to this at all, if you ask me, right? And it's peaceful, which I love. So uh, it's now got a tremendous amount of support. Now, you must be thinking, if you're familiar with the United Nations, but isn't the U.S. going to block this like they block everything else? No, U.S. can veto things in the Security Council, but this is in, in the Security Council. This is the General Assembly. And if they simply get enough votes in the General Assembly, which they seem to be incredibly likely to do, they will then be declared an official state in the United Nations. That has a tremendous amount of ramifications. One of the people who understands that is Ahud Barak, Israel's defense minister. He says, quote, we are facing a diplomatic political tsunami that the majority of the public is unaware of that will peak in September. It, quote, it is a very dangerous situation and one that requires action. And what he's saying is, 
Listen, and look, Ehud Barak does not have clean hands. I know he tried to do a peace deal when he was prime minister, and he should be given some credit for that. At the same time, he was a defense minister uh, during that Gaza incursion, among other things. So, and he, so Ehud Barak is a complicated character. But what he is saying here is, look, we got to get to a peace deal, otherwise we're in trouble here. Now, what kind of trouble are they in, and why are they in trouble? Well. Uh, Ari Shavit uh, explains in Haaretz newspaper, and he's a political centrist, he says, look, this is going to be like a diplomatic version of 1973. 1973, of course, is when Israel had its biggest military setback. He said, quote, every military base in the West Bank will be, meaning every Israeli military base in the West Bank, will be contravening the sovereignty of an independent UN member state if this happens. A diplomatic siege from without and a civil uprising from within will grip Israel in a stranglehold. Look, they are this concern and this worried because it's true. If you have this decision by the United Nations, it has ramifications and consequences. If you are serious violations of these of the rulings of the United Nations other states then take action most importantly economic action look in the end what's the only real pressure you could put on Israel is obviously to say hey people will no longer be trading with Israel hence their economic interests are hurt and whether you find the situation analogous or not in South Africa in regards to apartheid. What stopped apartheid, even if you don't think it's the right analogy in terms of Israel and South Africa, I'm saying in terms of what, prevent, what actually got the government to change, right or wrong, was the economic boycott, where people stopped trading with South Africa. And that hurt the, the rich and the powerful in South Africa enough that they said, no mas, we got to give in. And so that would be the road that Israel would be on if they don't go hurry up and make a peace deal. For the first time, they actually have a motivation to make a peace deal. Before, when they didn't make peace deals, they had almost nothing to lose. They thought, what are these Palestinians going to do? Anytime there's any kind of real conflict, we'll crush them militarily. So, but now, the economic and diplomatic, you know, real uh, matters are at hand here. Well, now they've got a motivation. So I think it was definitely the right strategy by the Palestinians. It's smart, it's peaceful, and it could be effective. So, And you can see the concern in Israel. And to me, it, it makes all the sense in the world. Look, you've got to motivate them. It's not just for the Palestinians' cause. It's for the Israelis as well. You cannot be occupying these people for all of that time. You just It's been 40 years you got to wake up. It's not the right thing for Israel, let alone everyone else. And, and if this drives both sides to a peace deal, well, that would be fantastic. So I'm a little hopeful today. Just what makes that little old ant think he'll move that rubber tree plant? Anyone knows an ant can't move a rubber tree plant, but he's got high hopes. He's got High hopes, he's got high apple pie in the sky. Hope so. Anytime you're getting low, instead of letting go, just remember that ant. Oops, there goes another rubber tree plant. Oops, there goes another rubber tree plant. Oops, there goes another rubber tree plant. My guest tonight. He is the reigning king of Jordan. Please welcome to the program, King Abdullah II.
to see you. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Very nice to see you. Thank you. It's so it's it's funny to see you. You and I are, are pretty much the exact same age, same and our time. lives have mirrored each other in so many ways. <laughs> your accomplishments in the, the army and the, with your people and, and your work with poverty, and I, I bartended at a Mexican restaurant for a while. Uh, do, you, do you feel the weight and the responsibility of, of all that's happening in the Middle East right now? This is such a momentous moment, and you are... are literally in the middle of it. Yes, because I mean there's an opportunity to really change our part of the world around and, and to lose that opportunity and resign our peoples to another decade or two of destruction you know, weighs on my shoulders as it does with a lot of people in our part of the world. Um, and if we don't get it right, then I think we're all in trouble. Now we, you know, uh, uh, people in this region have been fighting each other over this land for what, what time is it now? It's... <laughs> and and the, the process, they say now, we have a year. But aren't there, you know, isn't the real deadline that the, the settlements freeze expires in a week? That is what the challenge is today. For the first time, um, the Israelis and Palestinians are back to direct negotiations. Uh, we lost almost uh, nine months to the ten months for the moratorium on settlements, which ends on the 30th of September. The discussions that we had in Washington started out better than any of us could have expected. Both sides have made a lot of ground. Um, and if the issue of settlements is still on the table on the 30th, then everybody walks away. Um, and if they do, how are we going to be able to get people back to the table? And I don't see that happening in the near future. So if we fail on the 30th, expect another war by the end of the year. Expect another war by the end of the year. Um, and more wars um, that I foresee in the region over the coming years. You're already um, in two wars in our part of the world. Um, you have um, troops in two other hotspots. Um, I can see potential crisis number five, six, or seven. Unless we solve this problem, not only do we as the Arabs and Israelis pay the price for it, um, but your loved ones in harm's way will continue to be um, in the trenches with the rest of us. So everything is riding now on whether we can get both parties beyond the 30th, um, and so much is riding on our future. Does that, does that Laying that on the table almost, does that put too much power in the hands of those who could easily subvert the negotiations? Because clearly now, you know, facing the unfortunate facts of the region, there are uh, uh, people on both sides who would very much like to, to see this go away. Oh, and, how, and it, how, how fragile is it, this settlement issue, and if that's the issue that turns us to war? Well, we, we all got... Uh, painted into a corner on the issue of settlements, um, unfortunately. Um, and, and where we should have concentrated is on territories and, and, and the borders of a future Israeli-Palestinian uh, um, um, two-state solution. Um, and so now we've got this unfortunate issue of, of the 30th of September. Um, and there are people waiting in the wings for us to fail. Um, and we, I think as the moderates, are becoming uh, definitely the minority and we're losing our voices. Um, and what people will say uh, as we go beyond the 30th is, look, um, we've been telling you for years now that the moderates having dialogue with Israel is not the way to go. Violence is the only way. Um, and then we run out of an ability to be able to answer um, the extremists in our region. So I think we're on a defining crossroads of whether we're going to go down the abyss or not.
when, when you talk about extremists, and, and help us out, because un unfortunately for us, the delineation now between extremists and moderates uh, is, is unclear. We think of the extremists as uh, Al-Qaeda. Are you talking about the leadership of, of these countries? And well, we, we have extremists, I think, all over the world. I mean, if you look at, at, at the challenges, there's unfortunately um, uh, elements in all three of our religions mm -hmm. um, that are pushing us into the abyss. Um, we have our fair share of them in our part of the world and they're just waiting for us to, to fail. The extremists are those that don't want to see Arabs and Israelis have peace, um, Israelis and Muslims have peace. Uh, and that is the major challenge that we have. So now we've painted only with uh, greys. Give us some color in this. Give us, uh, <laughs> give us a little bit of autumn color. Give us a little bit of spring, a little bit of a, a green bud that you feel like it, it, it gives you a hopeful scenario. That because right now I don't mind telling you uh, I'm a little nauseous. I feel a little nauseous. <laughs> and, you know we're living there, and, and yeah, you're no, gonna, you know, I, you're you're very calm about it. Well, I, well, I think it, it, we're we're kind of used to to this, but I think where we are today is that where are we going to take? What's the next step that we're going to take? Um, uh, the, our future is either continued war and destruction is going to bring everybody in or people just getting to the table. The atmospherics between the two leaders are there. I mean, I saw the sincerity in Washington. Um, we've got a long way to go, but it's not like we're starting from the drawing board. Everybody knows what needs to be done on right. territory, on refugees, on Jerusalem. Um, and so getting to the end game can be done. Um, it's just do the leaders have um, the courage and the backbone to be able to do it. Um, that is a, what is in question. But again, I believe in humanity. I believe in uh, the people of our region, Israelis and Arabs, that when you put it to the people, look, this is the best deal I could get because there's no way that either leader is going to be happy with what he gets. Right. Um, at the end of the day, he's going to have to go back to his people and say, look, I did the best I could. This is what I have for you. Now, are you going to vote for peace or are you going to vote for war? And I have to believe in humanity that, that you know, for the future of our coming generations, mm -hmm. that the overall people on all sides will vote for, for light and not for darkness. It's got to happen. And it has it's, to. You know, it's, let's playing a little stratego here. Uh, in, in the region, you sort of have two, it, it feels like two competing powers are going for a moment. Iran and, and Turkey to some extent. It feels like they're both kind of competing in this idea of like, hey, maybe we're in ascendance, the West is not. Well, that's what I think people have to understand here. Obviously, uh, you made remarks to Iran. People have found, or certain powers have found... He's not going to hear that, is he? He wasn't just... I mean, I, I, I'm sure he watches you every day as I do. Um, <laughs> but, but, the, pro the problem is, is you have non-Arab actors that have realized that to be popular in our part of the world is to hijack uh, the injustice of the Palestinians and the future of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. um, and, and this is why Iran is central, not only to the problems that I think America is facing, but all of us are facing. Um, uh, and this is why they're uh, front and center. If the Israelis and Palestinians sit down and solve the problem, um, Iran cannot play mischief in our part of the world. The first people that will stand up to Iran and say, why are you threatening Israel is going to be the Palestinians themselves. Um, but because they have hijacked this cause, um, their, their star is up here. And we moderates um, have very little voice to be heard. So in some respect, you know, it, 
in some respects, the, the, you're saying the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is, is kind of the nuclear reactor of trouble within the region. Everything you, is you, interconnected right. with the Israeli-Palestinian um, uh, issue. Whether Won't the extremists find another excuse? Isn't there always another excuse? Won't they then say, well, actually, it was, we yes, were talking about it, Kashmir. It, it, that was it no longer becomes global. What happens is that if you have um, a settlement between the Israelis and the Palestinian, Al-Qaeda, which is an international organization, becomes a domestic issue. Because what is their rallying cry? Just as Iran, the plight of the Palestinians in the future of Jerusalem. If they make peace, which allows 57 Arab and Muslim countries to have normal relations with Israel, that's a third of the world, then they have no longer a, a, a soapbox to stand on. What happens then is Al-Qaeda will be an extremist organization in your country trying to take over your nation. It becomes a domestic issue and not an international issue. And that's the big difference. Iran also. How can Iran, um, you know, where is Iran now? It has its influence in Iraq. It has its influence in Afghanistan. Um, through Hezbollah, they're involved in the Mediterranean. Uh, they have uh, good relationships with Hamas. So they're sitting on the Mediterranean because of the Israeli-Palestinian cause. If we solve that problem, they no longer become uh, the big... The big that is, that, that's the largest foundation that we can pull out from underneath them. That's the, the, the largest rug that we can pull out. You, you, then, you, you then put them back in their box, you put uh, uh, Al-Qaeda back in their box and all the other problems. Evil will still persist. Right. Um, and, and that it has is, a way of you know, popping up every it, now and again. It does, yeah. But it becomes then a localized issue, which right. then governments, I think, will have to address, and that is reform and restructuring the way the Middle East deals with its people. Boy, if it were to work this way. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Why do so few people in our Congress speak out in support of people who, against whom genocide is being committed? And we don't have the decency that the Congress, I'm not talking about you, True Seeker, or me, I'm talking about the Congress of the United States, both houses of Congress. What, d does APAC own them? They can't make a statement based on morality and justice and decency. They can't say something like, yeah, we support the state of Israel as a political entity. But we do not support what is going on in the occupied territories and, and, and Gaza. As a matter of fact, we condemn it. No, we can't do that. Of course not. And why not? What the hell has happened to this country that that the Israeli lobby is so powerful that it has emasculated our lawmaking branch of government? How did that happen? How did that happen? I have gotten dozens 
Okay, scores of emails over the, the this week from people who say they're thanking me for speaking out. That's what they say, for speaking out about this issue. I have never heard anyone in American media say what you've been saying, Beloy. And that just, I mean, that embarrasses me. That makes me ashamed because I know that's true. There are very few people in any form of media, I don't care what it is, who will say, no, damn it, this is not right. No, what do we do in this country? Uh, we line up with these cheesy, cheap, immoral, unjust resolutions. 390 to 5. And two of those five were from the Minnesota delegation. Representatives Keith Ellison and Betty McCollum. Who voted present. McCollum, Betty McCollum from Minnesota, was among 22 legislators who refrained from voting. She said the resolution, quote, justifies Israel's bombardment of the citizens of Gaza, sanctions the incursion of Israeli troops into Gaza to clear this occupied territory of Hamas fighters, regardless of the human cost, and called the resolution and calls for, quote, supporting the Israeli-Palestinian peace process while innocent Palestinian women or children are being killed in Gaza. She goes on to say this resolution strongly and justifiably condemns Hamas. I disagree with you there, Representative McCollum, but let's go on with your statement. Quote, but the resolution's intent and substance are void of any relation to the hellish reality that is being inflicted on the citizens of Gaza right now or the deprivation inflicted upon Gaza's families by Israel's harsh denial of food, medicine, and fuel over the past year, end quote. And Allison, Keith Allison, who is Muslim, Acknowledged that he was torn, his, his word, torn about voting. He supports Israel's right to defend itself. But he also said that the resolution barely mentions the human suffering of the Palestinians in Gaza. Four Democrats voted against the resolution. Maxine Waters, Dennis Kucinich, Wisconsin's Gwen Moore, and West Virginia's Nick Rahal. And one Republican, Ron Paul of Texas. Well, I, I think the people in Minnesota should should be absolutely proud of the fact that you have two members of your delegation who said no. I'm not going to vote for it. And not to minimize their present vote, but they did vote present instead of voting no. I don't support this. I, 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 I don't know. Nobody speaks out for the Palestinians in the U.S. Congress. Nobody. Nobody. This is Shane from Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, I just wanted to call in. Uh, I just became a leftist member of the show, and I want to call in and urge others to 
you know, follow in my footsteps or, you know, even support at a higher level. Uh, it took me all up of about four episodes to realize that it was something that I needed to support and get behind. And now I seriously look forward to it uh, several times each week. And I'm, you know, one of the most informed uh, people I know on uh, a variety of political topics, all thanks to your show. So keep up the great work. And as I said, everybody that's listening, uh, you, know, you should really go out and support the show and uh, strengthen the liberal voice. All right. Thanks, Jay. Bye. Hey, Jay, this is Nick calling from Knoxville, Tennessee, calling to respond to your call to action for um, suggestions for podcasts. There's one show that I really enjoy. It's uh, Skeptically Speaking, and it's a radio show that's um, produced and carried in Canada. I believe it started out as a student radio show. All the podcasts from the most recent to way back in the student radio days are just absolutely superb. Um, I can't recommend them highly enough. They take a approach based on hard science, so it's not just debunking the myths of organized religions, but also the kind of new age spiritual stuff that uses pseudoscience to make uh, bogus claims and prey on people's uh, insecurities and fears. Hey Jay, it's Paul from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Um, yes, as I mean, as one of your first few voicemail listeners said, you do have listeners in Canada. And in fact, I do have somewhat of an activist call to action. For your Canadian viewers out there, as they probably know if they're listening to this show, there is a election coming up. And I just want to remind everyone, get everyone you know to vote. I know it's like a sudden election, because that's how it is in Canada. Um, and just know, don't vote for the Conservatives. I'm what you would consider kind of a left-leaning conservative. Um, if I was in America, I'd probably be voting communist, because your communist party is probably just as left-wing as, um, like it's ridiculous out where you guys are. But just don't vote for conservative. You can't. Not here. Normally I would say any of the parties are fine, but not this time. Thanks, Jay. Bye. Hey, Jay. This is Mike from Texas. I had a piece of information and kind of a piece of advice for the liberals of America. You know, we've dealt with the liberal brand for so long, and it's so easy for the conservatives to write us off as, oh, that's just a liberal thing. Well, why don't we go ahead and take the fight the other direction? Why don't we call the Republican Party what they are? They're not conservatives. They're fascists. Fascists, by definition, advocate the creation of a totalitarian single-party state that seeks the mass mobilization of a nation and creation of an ideal, quote, new man, end quote, to form a governing of elite through indoctrination, physical education, and family policy, including eugenics. A single-party state, hmm, kind of sounds like the Republican, what the Republicans are doing these days. So, you want to throw scary titles around? Let's throw some scary titles from the left back to the right and call these fascists what they are. Just my thoughts. Love what you're doing with this show. Love the fact that you consolidate all of the information into 
the chunks that allow us to process the information all at once instead of spread out over the course of time, allowing us to see just exactly what these fascists are doing. Thank you, Jay, and keep up the good work. Hey, Jay, this is Earl from Nashville, Tennessee. Brilliant title for your 420 show. I just wanted to call in and ask if you would support a primary candidate running against Obama in the 2012 election. Thanks, and keep up the great work. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action to be played on the show yourself, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. A couple of interesting voicemails to respond to today. First of all, Mike from Texas uh, says that the Republicans should be referred to as fascists. You know, I really thought he was going to go with uh, the other definition. I think it was Mussolini's definition of fascism. The, uh, the merger of corporate and state powers. And, uh, you know, that, that's kind of the general liberal definition uh, that people like to use when referring to the Republicans. Uh, but he didn't go that way. He went straight for, uh, you know, one, one party rule and, uh, and then brought in eugenics as part of his definition of fascism. And, um, you know, I think it's really hard to make that argument about the party who controls one quarter of the elected federal government and um, and then when you throw in eugenics, I mean, that really doesn't describe anyone I've ever heard of in America. <laughs> I'm sure there are some people who advocate eugenics. Uh, I've never heard of them. So uh, so I think I think Mike kind of discredited his argument a little bit uh, by going in that direction. Uh, if he had gone with the uh, merger of corporate and state powers, I would have been sympathetic to the argument. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but I still would have generally discouraged uh, that sort of, uh, you know, use of language. I think that, um, you know, based on the realities of the history of the world, that uh, fascism, you know, rightly or wrongly, is basically synonymous with the Nazis. And I've come to agree with, uh, with the argument that when the Nazis are brought up in a political debate, it's basically the nuclear option, and there's no way to, to go on from that point to have a reasonable, rational discussion about policy or anything else when one side or the other uh, invokes the Nazis in reference to their political opponents, you know, because no one in America is uh, synonymous with the Nazis. They just aren't. So, um, so going down that rhetorical uh, rabbit hole, I, I just don't think is uh, worthwhile or beneficial. Not to mention accurate. Uh, along those same lines, uh, in, in a more general sense, I'm basically in favor of uh, referring to people and organizations the way they want to be referred to. Because if you if you don't, then it's basically tantamount to name calling, uh, which I find incredibly childish. So, you know, the the Republicans do this a lot, uh, and I think that they're repulsive and, and childish uh, for doing so. Uh, the Democratic Party refers to themselves as the Democratic Party or as the Democrats. And the Republicans have made the conscious effort to uh, refer to them as the Democrat Party, uh, which I find buffoonish. Uh, so I would never, you know, as much as I hate when they do it, I would never want to be, um, you know, I'd, I would never want to use those sorts of uh, rhetorical tactics myself because I'd be embarrassed to. I honestly would. Um, it's, it's rare, but I get some 
messages from people who are fans of this show who employ those sorts of tactics. Um, the, the one that pops to mind is I've, I've heard uh, both parties referred to as the Republicraven party and the Democraven party uh, or the Democravens or something like that. And, um, and I just find it childish. And so, you know, I'm not going to tell anyone how they should talk or, or what sh they should say, but I'll definitely tell you that uh, if you use that sort of language with me, I'm going to lose a lot of respect for you immediately and, uh, and severely diminish the weight that I give whatever argument you happen to be making. So that, that's my take on uh, use of language in political debates. Uh, second uh, voicemail was uh, Earl from... Nashville, who's asking my opinion about uh, if I would support a primary candidate against Obama. Uh, I just want to refer you guys, to, if you want my opinion on that, um, I spoke at length on the February 3rd episode. This was the uh, Gabrielle Giffords shooting part two episode. I discussed uh, the possibility of a primary candidate. And then um, I got a voicemail who kind of questioned me about what I had said uh, so then I got to respond to that voicemail and clarify further my thoughts on it on the February 15th episode, uh, an episode about the media called Col uh, A Collection of Embarrassments. So um, if you want my opinion, check those out. Uh, the short version is uh, in, in a complete vacuum, I would probably be supportive of that idea. Uh, in reality, I don't think it would work and would be uh, and, and would end up being a, a gigantic backfire. Now, just before I go, I want to continue to uh, encourage you guys to support uh, the organization that I've been helping uh, fundraise for. Please check out uh, the bit.ly link, bit.ly bit.ly slash support NLC. The New Leaders Council is a fantastic organization that I've uh, become a part of, uh, have received training from, and am and, and trying to do my part to repay you know, the, the great service that they've done to help me by helping raise a little bit of money for them. So we have a fundraiser uh, happening for that organization. Uh, it is a, you know, local Chicago fundraiser. You know, it's an event that you could come to if you're in the neighborhood. But even if you're not in the neighborhood, it's it's a national organization. All the money effectively gets pooled to the national group. And so uh, I'm asking you to support uh, the Chicago chapters, uh, you know, contribution to the National uh, New Leaders Council, which allows them to uh, expand their network, uh, open up new chapters in new cities uh, where they do trainings for awesome young progressive people to get them, you know, trained and more engaged uh, to use those skills in the political world. So again, if you have five bucks, you can throw uh, towards, you know, a great organization that I really support. Check out bit.ly slash support NLC. Of course, that is listed in the show notes of this episode, so you can find it there. So now I just want to thank a couple of members. Becky G signed up for a leftist membership, uh, paying for a full year in advance, way back on November 27th of 2009. Huge thanks to Becky uh, for sticking with the show. And James S signed up for a socialist membership back on January 3rd of this year, paid for a full year in advance as well. So huge thanks to uh, James and Becky and all of the members and donors who make this show possible. I couldn't do it without you guys. Everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Please check out the new video version of the show on YouTube. Of course, that 
also is linked up in the show notes of this episode. Stay connected with the show and help spread the word online by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Now black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Bitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to be A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Will take you out